Well, welcome to Isaiah 28 and 29. Two full chapters in one sermon. That's a lot. And at one level, as a preacher, I see that and go, I'd like to have a chat with the guy who set this up. <clears throat> but at another level, I'm aware I'm the guy who set this up. We're preaching through the book of Isaiah in a year. And as we're nearing the halfway point of 2019, we're also nearing the halfway point of Isaiah. In three weeks, June 30th, we'll be halfway through the year. And the sermon that Sunday will be on chapter 33, halfway through Isaiah. But in order to hit that mark, one occasionally has to slot larger than ideal sections and today is one of those occasions. At a normal preaching pace, each chapter at least would get its own sermon. But today it's a two-for-one deal. 53 verses of Isaiah. And by this time, you're well aware of the way he talks. So you know those aren't 53 simple, straightforward verses. They're 53 dense, poetic verses. Within the sermon... I prefer to read the text aloud. It would take about 10 minutes just to read this passage aloud. So what's a preacher to do? I could pick a point or two from those chapters and preach on them, but that wouldn't really cover the text. But if we do really cover the text, start at chapter 28, verse 1, and 35 or 40 minutes later conclude at chapter 29, verse 24 then we're not really doing a sermon. It's more like a Bible study. Now, I'm not knocking Bible study. It's great, but preaching is or should be something else. Going through Isaiah, we preachers are often confronted with this choice, and the size of this pack passage makes it all that much more of a decision this morning. And today, I have elected to go through the passage. We're going to start at chapter 28, verse 1 and conclude at chapter 29, verse 24. I'm not going to frame it sermonically with trying to make a point to exhort or encourage you. There's plenty of applicable truths and insights along the way. But in a regular sermon, it's the preacher's job to prepare that for you and hand it to you on a platter, so to speak. But this morning, instead of being your waiter, as it were, I'm, I'm more like the host in a buffet line. I'm going to walk you through it, and I'm going to point out the various dishes, describing them a bit, but you will have to serve yourself. So, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 28. We begin with verses 1 through 6. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys, to those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot, and the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, he eats it up while it is still in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, 
and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. By now we are familiar with, if not comfortable with, Isaiah's use of multiple frameworks. Now he's addressing the immediate circumstances. Now he's talking about the end of the world. Here we're at the Babylonian exile. There we're in the Messianic kingdom. The verses we just read describe the judgment of the drunkards of Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom. Then verses 5 and 6 fast forward to the Messianic age. We're alternating between this age and the age to come. The evil of this age deserves and will receive judgment, but that's not the end of the story. A faithful remnant will be preserved through the judgment for blessing and prosperity in the age to come. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. Historical background, we're in the late 8th century B.C., 730, 720, 710. It's the time of the divided monarchy where there were two Jewish kingdoms, a northern one called Israel, a southern one called Judah. Geopolitically, the big dog has been Assyria. In 722, they conquered the northern kingdom and sent them into exile. There's been a lot of political intrigue. Who is allying with who against whom? And even though I may not have gotten that grammatically correct, it does give you the idea. It's kind of like a geopolitical version of Survivor. The players are jostling and conniving, trying to protect themselves from threats. The southern kingdom, Judah, had allied with Assyria against the northern kingdom. And while that was politically expedient, it was spiritually disobedient. They should have relied on the Lord rather than a foreign alliance, and as time has rolled on, those chickens are coming home to roost, leading to yet more political intrigue, because as Judah now fears Assyria, they will turn to yet another foreign nation, Egypt. Lather, rinse, repeat. Well, in this portion of Isaiah, he's mainly addressing Judah. Verses 1 through 6 are something like a background slash reminder of what happened to the northern kingdom with drunkenness as a central theme. And as I understand him, in verse 7, Isaiah transitions using the theme of drunkenness from describing the way it was in the northern kingdom to how it now is in the southern kingdom. Because the northern kingdom's gone, punished, judged, exiled. But it seems the southern kingdom had not learned anything from that because they're following the same path, verses 7 and 8. But they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. Not a pretty picture. The spiritual leaders and rulers, priests and prophets, are not just drunk. They're stumbling, puking, soil yourself drunk. This is not going to end well. Verse 9 shifts to their voice, what the prophets and priests are saying, and they are complaining. Their complaint is that God seems to be treating them like little children. Verse 9. Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? 
those just weaned from milk, those just drawn from the breasts? Does he think he's dealing with little kids? For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. The gist here is that the speakers think they are mature and grown up. They see the world as it is. It's fine to tell children to be good and trust God, but they live in the real world where they're experiencing a real threat from Assyria, and they need real help of the sort they imagine that they can get from Egypt. And they feel that God, through Isaiah, is addressing them like children with Sunday school platitudes about trusting God and everything turning out fine. There's two things going on in verse 10. The first is the meaning. This is the way you teach little kids, bit by bit, over and over, a little bit more, repeat some more. They're being sarcastic. They don't think they should be addressed that way. That's the first thing. The second thing is the sound of the words themselves. We often point out Isaiah's masterful use of language. Here, the sounds of the words sort of alternate or wobble back and forth like baby talk. And I can't articulate it well enough in Hebrew to convey the effect. That's why we have Bob here. But, but in English, it would be something like itsy-bitsy, smoochy-woochy, blah-blah-blah-blah-blah, blah-blah-blah-blah-blah. That is, so they say, how the word of the Lord sounds to them. Isaiah gives the Lord's reply, beginning in verse 11. For with stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to this people, to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. They would not hear, would not respond to the word of the Lord. He offered them rest. They didn't want it. Said it sounded like baby talk. So the Lord will speak to them another way. With stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. He's going to talk to them in a different language. Aramaic. That's the language the Assyrians speak. God's sarcastic point is, you don't like the words I'm using? I'll put it in other words for you. Deliver the message in a different language. We'll see how you like that. Reading on, verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves." A covenant with death, an agreement with Sheol. The way we'd phrase this is, they've made a deal with the devil. And like every deal with the devil, it gets them what they want up front. They think they're safe, but there is a horrible price to pay at the end. Their deal with the devil is relying on Egypt to help them against Assyria. They're just playing the world's game, power politics, when they should be relying on God. At this point, God speaks of the real solution, the ultimate solution. Verse 16, 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Also, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. That precious cornerstone will be the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is referenced directly in Ephesians 2.20 and 1 Peter 2.6. And it also gets combined with another image from Isaiah, the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. That's Isaiah 8.14 and 15. You'll see that combination in 1 Peter 2 and Romans 9. But I was also impressed with the assertion of salvation by faith here. There's a couple of signature passages in the Old Testament. Genesis 15.6, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. Justifiably famous verses. But take a look at Isaiah 28.16. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation... Whoever believes will not act hastily. Seems to me that ought to be on the short list. Anyway, within the context of the passage, this is his, Isaiah's, look ahead to the Messianic kingdom. Then, midway through verse 17, the Lord announces the failure of their deal with the devil. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. As often as it goes out, it will take you, for morning by morning it will pass over, and by day and by night it will be a terror just to understand the report. If you compare uh, 17 through 19 with verse 15, you'll see every aspect of their deal with the devil has failed. They made a covenant, it's annulled. Got an agreement, it won't stand. Think they're safe from the overflowing scourge, it will trample them down. Then verse 20 is for me delightful. Not because it's comforting or upbeat, but because it's simple and comprehensible. Isaiah is not a light read. It takes everything you've got to track with him, and even then you're not sure you're getting it. But you come to verse 20, For the bed is too short to stretch out on, and the covering so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. You get this quaint little slice of life. Yes, it's picturing discomfort and frustration, but it's so simple. It speaks as directly to us as it did to them thousands of years ago. The bed is too short to stretch out on, and the covering too narrow to wrap yourself. The bed's too short, and the blanket's too small. They can't get comfortable. And so you picture them all through the night, maneuvering and jostling and trying to make the arrangements, but it won't work. The bed's too short. The blanket's too small. Their situation is fundamentally flawed. That's the picture. The bed's too short. The blanket's too small. What it illustrates is the flaw, the mistake, of seeking help from the world rather than from God. Obviously, it's not a happy verse, but the clarity of that picture made me happy anyway. Then verses 20 and 21. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon. uh, That he may do his work, his awesome work, 
and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Now, therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. At Mount Perizim, the Lord acted against the Philistines, 2 Samuel 5, in the Valley of Gibeon, uh, against the Amorites, Joshua 10. And the Lord's going to rise up again to perform an awesome work, an unusual act. In the Old King James, that's translated his strange work, his strange act. And the unusual, awesome, strange thing he's going to do is act against his people. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. Then in verses 23 through 29, we are given a neat little parable. We could call it the parable of the plowman or the parable of the farmer. The point is, just as a farmer knows what he's doing, performing each step in turn, handling different crops differently, just as the farmer knows what he's doing to bring about his harvest, so the Lord knows what he's doing to bring in the harvest of the faithful. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin? Plant the wheat in rows, the barley in the appointed place, and the spelt in its place? For he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin. But the black cumin is beaten out with a stick, and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel, or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. A farmer doesn't just keep plowing what he's plowed. He plows it, and then he sows. He doesn't try to harvest cumin the same way he would harvest wheat. It wouldn't work. In the process, there's always an appropriate step, and each crop requires its own treatment. Likewise, the Lord is cultivating his harvest, and it may seem to be a strange, unusual way he's doing it, but he knows what he's doing. Chapter 29, verses 1 through 8. Here Jerusalem is addressed as Ariel. Many of you know we have a daughter named Ariel, so I'll have a bit to say about that. But Jerusalem is told it will be humbled by a siege, yet ultimately delivered as its foes disappear. Verses 1 through 4. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add year to year, let feasts come around. Yet I will distress Ariel, there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel. I will encamp against you all around. I will lay siege against you with a mound, and I will raise siege works against you. You shall be brought down. You shall speak out of the ground. Your speech shall be low out of the dust. Your voice shall be like a medium's out of the ground, and your speech shall whisper out of the dust. So, Ariel. Jerusalem is called Ariel, and we have a daughter named Ariel. It means lion or lioness of God. We liked that, which is why we named her Ariel. 
We knew there'd be pronunciation problems. It's not Ariel. Ariel's the little mermaid. It's Ariel, the lioness of God. By the way, at this moment, our daughter Ariel is working at REI. <laughs> Seriously. REL at REI. We should have seen this coming. But if you want help remembering the pronunciation, just remember REI is where REL works. Anyway, back to Jerusalem. REL means lion or lioness of God. Perhaps intended here in reference to the city's glory or former glory, but it can also mean hearth of God, as in altar hearth. Jerusalem being the location of the temple and therefore the location of the altar on which the sacrifices were made. Either way, the city was going to be besieged and brought low. That's verses 1 through 4, but reading on. Moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones like chaff that passes away. Yes, it shall be in an instant, suddenly. You will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. The multitude of all the nations who fight against Ariel, even all who fight against her and her fortress and distress her, shall be as a dream of a night vision. It shall be even as when a hungry man dreams, and look, he eats, but he awakes, and his soul is still empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and look, he drinks, but he awakes, and indeed he is faint, and his soul still craves. So the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. Remarkable passage. You uh, remember verse 7 of chapter 27? Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? We talked about how Isaiah uses the language there. But the meaning, you may recall, was that Israel, yes, is going to be punished, but her enemies are going to be punished more. In the year 701, the Assyrians completely conquered Judah. Everything except Jerusalem which they besieged. The Assyrian king Sennacherib bragged about this in inscriptions, said he shut up King Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage, which he did. But the Assyrian inscriptions don't go on to tell the rest of the story, which is that the Assyrians abandoned the siege. After the angel of the Lord killed 185 thousand of them in one night. We're just a few chapters away from Isaiah's historical account of this, but that's what's in view here. Yes, they're going to be besieged. Yes, it's going to look as bad as it could possibly look, but ultimately the enemies are going to vanish like a dream. So the multitude of all nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. Now, the rest of chapter 29 is basically two sections, 9 through 16 on their blindness and folly, then 17 through 24 on the ultimate lifting of that blindness. In judgment, he remembers mercy, there's a judgment, and there's a remnant. That's the drumbeat running through this first section of Isaiah. So, verses 9 through 12. Pause and wonder, blind yourselves and be blind. 
They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep, and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and has covered your heads, namely the seers. The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I am not literate. In simple terms, they're not getting it. They are not getting it at all. And while that's certainly frustrating and may be surprising to us, it was no surprise to God. Do you recall Isaiah's commission? Chapter 6, near King Uzziah dies, he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, cries out, Woe to me, for I am ruined. Then the seraphim touches his lips with the coal, saying, Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Then the Lord asked, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. So the Lord says, Okay, here's the message. Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. It is a message of judicial blindness. The people have chosen not to listen to the Lord for so long that their very ability to listen is taken from them. It's like the vision's a sealed book, and they take it to someone who can read, and he says, I can't read this, it's sealed. Do they unseal it? No. Then they take it to somebody who's illiterate, ask him if he can read it, he says, I can't read this because I can't read anything. It's nuts. It's dreadful. Please, God, keep our eyes and ears open and our hearts soft. But it was too late for them. Therefore, the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men, Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Woe to those who sink deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? As we read through Isaiah, you ever get the feeling you're suddenly spliced into the New Testament? I just read four verses, Isaiah 29, 13 through 16. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, you probably recognize two references in those four verses. Verse 13, these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, cited in Matthew 15, 8 and 9. And verse 16 is the basis for Paul's potter and clay illustration in Romans 9. But wait, there's more. Paul quotes verse 14 in 1 Corinthians 1, 19. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And the reason that doesn't sound like a direct quotation has to do with the interplay between Hebrew and Greek and English, but it is a quotation. So that is three New Testament citations in the space of four verses. I could have done this sermon <coughs> on Isaiah 28 and 9, uh, 29 simply by going through the New Testament quotations from these two chapters. And that would have been a fun way to do it, but it wouldn't have given us a feel for these verses in context. And that is why we are plowing through. Started at chapter 28, verse 1, and we're almost to chapter 29, verse 24. Precept upon precept, line upon line. Back to the immediate context. I was struck by verse 15. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us. Do they really imagine that they are hiding things from God? We understand people can hide things from one another. That makes sense. Uh, Not that it's right. I'm just saying it's possible that happens. But they are seeking ways to hide things from God. It says they seek deep. Maybe they're going down in tunnels figuring God can't see below the ground. Maybe they work at night, imagining God can't see in the dark. Wouldn't surprise me if they talked quietly, whispered so God couldn't hear. It's insane. But the whole thing is insane, and that's where their sin has taken them. When we turn the corner in Isaiah from the first section to the second, beginning in chapter 40, we'll encounter a beautiful hymn to the majesty of God. To whom then will you liken me, or whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. At one point in that passage, the Lord asks, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? Neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. We're talking about God, capital G-O-D. You can't hide things from him, nor can you fool him. Well, as it seems so often in Isaiah, we spend a lot of time in the Valley of Judgment and then end up on an upbeat note, a ray of hope. So it is here in verses 17 through 24 of chapter 29. Is it not yet a little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest? In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the terrible one is brought to nothing, the scornful one is consumed, and all who watch for iniquity are cut off, who make a man an offender by a word, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and turn aside the just by empty words. Therefore thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed nor shall his face now grow pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name, and hallow the Holy One of Jacob, and fear the God of Israel. These also who erred in spirit will come to understanding, 
and those who complained will learn doctrine. So, again, Isaiah brings a message of judgment, as he puts it in verse 19 of chapter 28. It will be a terror just to understand the report. But he never leaves it there. There's always a beyond, a remnant, a hope. In that day the deaf shall hear, and the eyes of the blind shall see. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. As we invest this time in Isaiah, in some sense we're getting used to him, but I suspect he still feels distant and foreign. And I just want to close by reading some passages from the New Testament that are really doing the same thing he's doing, telling us about difficulty and struggle and judgment and pointing us to look ahead, to look beyond to the glorious end God is bringing about. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.13 The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 11 through 13. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-8 Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Let's pray. Lord, again, we are humbled by the wealth and the depth and the magnitude of your word and your revelation. Lord, we know it... uh, It can be as practically simple as Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's true, amen. But it's limitless, it's bottomless. Thank you for your servant Isaiah. And Lord, would you work in our hearts to bridge that the time and the language so that those uh, 
the dynamics which they're dealing with, whether it's faith or drunkenness or who they're trusting or what they're looking for, that we may see those dynamics in our lives. Their bed was too short and their blanket was too small. Lord, when we find ourselves frustrated because we're not trusting you, may we turn to you and trust you for your glory. Amen.